Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mysteries surrounding it. Some are solved and some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Aaron Fleming. This week, I'm going to talk about twins, specifically identical twins. Siblings have a very special bond. I'm an only child, so I've always been really fascinated by the relationships others have with their siblings. I remember always desperately wanting a brother or sister. But it seems like a lot of them don't get along. Like any relationship, it's complicated. It's even more so for identical twins. They have a special bond unlike any other. Some dress alike. There's the festival in Twinsburg, Ohio every year for identical twins, which thousands attend. And many times twins act alike. I mean, how many stories have you heard of twins that were separated at birth that live almost identical existences even though they knew nothing of each other? It's apparent that the bond is something the rest of us do not understand. And sometimes that bond goes so deep, it becomes detrimental or deadly. So that's the case in the two sets of twins I'm going to discuss this week. First, we'll look at Ursula and Sabina Eriksson, Swedish twins whose mental breakdown was captured on film as they threw themselves into traffic on a busy British highway. Then I'll talk about June and Jennifer Gibbons, who both lived a life of self-imposed silence 
It's until one of them decided one had to die. This week is about deadly twins. So Ursula and Sabina Eriksson were born in 1967 in Western Sweden. I really couldn't find much out about their early life other than the fact that they had an older brother. They lived in Sweden until 2003, and that's when Sabina moved to Ireland with her husband and two children, and Ursula moved to the United States. They both lived very normal, uneventful lives. That's until May of 2008, around the time when the twins were 40 years of age. Ursula came from the U.S. to see her sister in Mallow. That's on the north side of County Cork, Ireland. They left Sabina's home without telling her husband or children, and from there they headed to Liverpool. On May 17th, they went to St. Anne Police Station, and there they told a bizarre story, saying Sabina's husband and another man kidnapped her children. Of course, police followed up on the report, and her husband, very perplexed, said she left after an argument the two had. From there, the twins boarded the National Express coach to London around midday. So the coach made a stop at Keel Services. It's a motor motorway service station, and that's where things went awry. The driver became very suspicious of their behavior. They were tightly clutching their bags, and they refused to let them be searched for re-entry onto the bus. He was so concerned that the bags may have drugs or explosives, that he called the manager of the station, who then called the police. However, the women were deemed harmless. Still, the driver felt so uncomfortable he refused re-entry. So from there, the women left on foot and began walking down the central reservation of the M6 motorway. Now, this isn't a country road. This is a major highway or motorway, as it's called there. So at one point, they attempt to cross the motorway, causing absolute chaos. That's when they were noticed by staff monitoring the closed-circuit cameras. And they alerted the highway patrol unit. The police and the highway's agency traffic officers responded. So I had no idea what that was, but it's a government-owned company that's responsible for the operation maintenance and improvement of the motorways in England. Accompanying the police was a television crew filming a show called Motorway Cops. And that's a British documentary series. It's on Channel 5, and it follows road policing units from various UK police forces. It was a spinoff of the popular Traffic Cops, which aired until 2016. So for us, it's essentially a British version of the show Cops. Coincidentally, everything was caught on tape. The police were speaking with the highway agency tra traffic officers on the shoulder of the highway, and the twins were standing alongside them. So that's when Ursula ran directly into traffic, getting immediately hit by an oncoming Mercedes-Benz Actros 2546 articulated lorry. It's a heavy-duty truck used for long-distance hauling. In the U.S., that would be a semi. Then Sabina also runs directly into traffic, getting hit by 
a Volkswagen Polo. That's a super mini car. Now remember, all of this is being filmed. You can watch this on YouTube. You see the, the twins that are standing there. Ursula starts the run. The officer is pulling at her sweater to stop her. The camera captures her going under the truck, and this is to the horror of everyone watching. Her legs were crushed. And then you see Sabina in her red sweater run out and bounce off the hood of the windshield of the car. So they both lay on the motorway. Officers are running around. They're desperate to get the situation under control. And this is all extremely dangerous. It's a very busy motorway. You can't just stop in the middle of it. There's the danger of causing accidents and even more injuries. It's absolute chaos. So by this time, paramedics have arrived and they're trying to attend to each of the twins. I say try because they weren't being cooperative at all. Ursula's legs were crushed and Sabina was unconscious for about 15 minutes. Instead of accepting aid, they were both fighting and cursing at the police and paramedics. You can see Ursula clawing and spitting at an officer. She says, I recognize you. I know you're not real. Repeatedly, they tell her that they're the police and they're there to help. Sabina, meanwhile, has gotten to her feet. A policewoman pleads with her to stay down and get treatment. She strikes the officer and takes off running. She crossed the central reservation again onto the other side of the busy motorway. All the while, she's yelling things to her sister like, they're going to steal your organs. By this time, it's absolute chaos. The police are struggling to stop traffic on both sides of the motorway now, and people are running everywhere. The officers are really struggling to get a hold of Sabina, and some members of the public have joined in to help. It took a group of people to grab her and restrain her. The officers talked of how her strength was remarkable. It took around six people to restrain her. All the while, she's resisting and yelling, help, police. They repeatedly tell her they are the police. The shock and frustration is very apparent on their faces. They carried both twins to the ambulance to sedate them. The ambulance workers refused to transport them until they're absolutely sedated and restrained, despite any injuries they may have had. There's a very fascinating documentary called Madness in the Fast Lane, and it documents this whole account. I highly suggest it. I mean, you've never seen people deliberately run into traffic like this. I mean, they dash out like they really want to be hit. It's absolutely bizarre. So the officers and the paramedics dealing with it are just in absolute shock. In this documentary, it's years later, and they are still very disturbed and confounded by the whole incident. So Ursula is taken to the hospital, where she stays for weeks. Sabina is taken to the hospital and then to the police station about five hours later, and they have this on tape too. Here she's very normal, almost flurry with the officers. She said, we see in Sweden that an accident rarely comes alone. Usually at least one more follows, maybe two. And this becomes a very prophetic statement. 
not only truly strange is her somewhat normal behavior, what's also odd is the absence of drugs or alcohol in either of their systems. I mean, what caused their behavior? Why were they actively trying to cross this motorway, almost wanting to be crushed by oncoming traffic? On May 19, 2008, Sabina was released from court without a full psychiatric evaluation. She pled guilty to trespass on a motorway and hitting an officer. She was sentenced to only one day in custody. After that, she was seen wandering the street on Stoke-on-Tent. She was carrying a clear bag with her belongings, possibly trying to find the hospital with her sister. Stoke-on-Tent is a city in Staffordshire, England. Ursula had been taken to the hospital in that area. Around 7 p.m., two men were out walking a dog, and they spotted Sabina walking alone on Christchurch Street in Fenton. The men were 54-year-old Glenn Hollingshead. He's a father of two, self-employed welder, trained paramedic, and former RAF worker, and his friend Peter Malloy. The three struck up a conversation. Malloy later recalls Sabina was friendly but a little odd. She asked if there were any hotels or better breakfasts in the area and where she might find them. Glenn took pity on her and he offered her a place to stay at his house. So from there, the three walked to Glenn Hollingshead's house that's on Duke Street in Fenton. At the house, Sabina's behavior got very erratic. She would offer the two men cigarettes, and then she would snatch them from their mouths, saying they were poisoned. They noticed she was carrying multiple phones and a laptop. She constantly, fearfully looked out the windows. Peter Malloy thought maybe she was on the run from an abusive relationship. And this was the last he saw of it. He left the home a little before midnight. So the next day, Glenn got up, and he made phone calls to the local hospitals in an attempt to find Ursula for her sister. Glenn then went outside to ask his neighbor, Frank Booth, for some tea bags. Frank was outside washing his car. He told Glenn he'd finish up and then bring over some tea bags. Only a minute after Glenn went back inside his house, he staggered outside saying, She stabbed me before falling to the ground. He'd been stabbed five times with a kitchen knife. Frank immediately called 999, which is our equivalent to 911. Sabina fled the scene. Sadly, Glenn later died at the hospital from his injuries. So on the run, Sabina was seen on the street, repeatedly hitting herself in the head with a hammer she'd taken from the home. A passing motorist, Joshua Gradage, exited his car in an attempt to stop her. He tackled Sabina and tried to get the hammer away from her. That's when she pulled a roof tile from her back pocket and she struck him on the back of the head. He's momentarily stunned, so he let go. By this time, paramedics arrived and they pursued her. Sabina then jumped from a 40-foot high bridge at Heron Cross onto the A5 motorway. 
They took her to the hospital with multiple broken bones. On June 6th, she was arrested at the University Hospital of North Staffordshire. She was discharged on September 11th and formally charged with the murder of Glenn Hollinshead. His brother Gary said, We don't hold her responsible, the same as one wouldn't blame a rabid dog for biting someone. I do question the criminal justice system for allowing somebody like this to be out when she is capable of committing such a crime. Her mental condition should have been properly assessed after what she did on the motorway and the experiences the police had. Her mental disorder should have been picked up prior to her being let out in the community. Fault seems to be focused at the court, even by the police. An officer involved in the situation said, now if we had released her from the police station, there would have been an immediate inquiry and cause of neglect or worse. But the court appears to escape criticism. I can't help but feel that somebody somewhere has made a poor decision in her case, leading to the death of another. Sabina's trial was scheduled for September 1, 2009, due to the court having trouble getting her medical records from Sweden. She pled guilty to manslaughter with diminished responsibility on September 2nd. When asked about what prompted her actions, she always replied with no comment. The defense counsel tried to explain her actions with the term falle à This is a French term that literally means madness of two. It's a shared psychosis in which symptoms of delusional belief and hallucinations are transmitted from one person to another. It's also sometimes called shared psychotic disorder. In this disorder, Sabina is the secondary sufferer, while they say Ursula is the primary one. Sabina also suffered from rare psychiatric disorder that made her hear voices, only she didn't know what they were saying. It's called acute polymorphic delusional disorder. One suffering from this can have delusions, but sometimes no hallucinations. It's a mood disorder in which one can function in a normal manner. This may explain why Sabina could appear normal at the police station or when she initially began talking to Peter Malloy and Glenn Holland's head on the street. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. 
For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Sabina accepted a plea of manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility at Nottingham Crown Court on September 2, 2010. She was sentenced to five years in prison. She had already spent 439 days in custody before her sentencing, so this made her eligible for parole in 2011. Apparently, while in prison, she turned to Christianity. So where are the twins now? It was hard to find much information. It appears Sabina is living in Norway. Ursula spent three months in a psychiatric facility, and she now lives back in the United States, where she is a member of the Sacred Heart Church. But it's still not known exactly why they acted in such a bizarre manner. There are many theories, of course, but most of them are truly out there. There's one that the twins are alien-reptilian hybrids. Another states that they were MK-Ultra test subjects. That was a mind control program. It's run by the CIA, which used in the 50s through the 70s. While the program has proven to really exist, no one can say for sure that these were subjects of it. Another theory is that they were part of a super soldier program to create indestructible humans. Proponents of this theory point to the fact that the twins were able to be hit by speeding vehicles, and walk away virtually unscathed. One man, Duncan O'Finian, claims the twins and himself are part of such a program. Regardless, it's a mystery, and I'm not even sure the twins themselves really understand what happened. I highly recommend watching the documentary Madness in the Fast Lane on YouTube, because you really have to see this madness with your own eyes. Now, this next case doesn't involve murder, but it does have a very inexplicable death. June and Jennifer Gibbons were born on April 11, 1963 in Barbados. They were the daughters of Caribbean immigrants, Gloria and Aubrey Gibbons. Gloria was a housewife and their father, Aubrey, was a teacher for the Air Force. His job took the family all over and shortly after their birth, they moved to Harbor Ford West, Wales. The twins were late to talk, waiting till about the age of three. In their new school, they were severely ostracized. They were the only black family in an entirely white school. The girls were so bullied that they had to be dismissed every day, early to prevent bullying from the other students. Their Creole accent became even harder to understand. So they now spoke in an idiosyncratic style. It's virtually unintelligible to others. In fact, they reverted to an idioglossia. That's a private invented language used only by the two of them. It's a form of cryptophagia. That's a language developed by twins that only they can understand. June said about it, It started as a game, but the longer it went on, the more trapped we felt. It went too far, and although we longed to be normal, we couldn't break out. 
We tried to get back to the outside world, but it was too late. We were twins, but our personalities clashed. So in addition to their private language, their behavior was also odd. Their actions would mirror each other. If anyone looked at them, they would freeze in position. They took turns following each other and synchronizing their steps. And they spoke to no one. The only exception being their younger sister, Rose. So at age 14, the bizarre behavior continued. They wrapped their now growing breasts in bandages to flatten them. They were sent to Eastgate Center for special education for testing. The results were very contradictory. On one, they scored as socially maladjusted, depressed, and withdrawn. On the other, well balanced and independent. In an effort to break their isolation with the outside world, the twins were sent to separate boarding schools. However, this had the opposite effect. Now the twins became even more withdrawn and catatonic. Once reunited, they retreated to their bedroom, spending years isolated there. They developed elaborate plays and stories, much like soap operas. And sometimes they recorded them on tape as presents for their sister. In 1979, when the twins were 16, they were given diaries at Christmas. And these they began writing voraciously, about 3,000 words a day. And these diaries provide some insight into their thinking. June wrote in hers, Nobody suffers the way I do, not with a sister. With a husband, yes. With a wife, yes. With a child, yes. But this sister of mine, a dark shadow robbing me of sunlight, is my one and only torment. Jennifer wrote in hers, We have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We feel the irritating deadly rays come out of our bodies, stinging each other's skin. I say to myself, can I get rid of my own shadow? Would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life, be free, or left to die? Without my shadow, which I identify with a face of misery, deception, murder? The twins began a mail-order creative writing course. They each wrote several novels, most set in Malibu, California. The character's behavior was bizarre. June wrote The Pepsi-Cola Addict, in which a main character is seduced by his teacher, then sent to a reformatory, where a homosexual guard makes a move on him. Jennifer wrote The Pugilist. In this novel, a doctor is desperate to save his child's life, kills the family dog for its heart to use in a heart transplant. The dog's spirit then seeks revenge on the doctor. In Discomania, a young woman goes to a local disco, which incites patrons to insane violence. The novels were published by New Horizons, a self-publishing press. However, the twins didn't have any luck selling their short stories to magazines. It was also around this time they lost their virginity to a pair of sons of an American Navy serviceman. First Jennifer, and then June a week later. The flings fizzled and the boys abandoned them. Their behavior toward each other also disintegrated. There were murderous fights. Jennifer tried to strangle June with a cord, 
June tried to drown Jennifer in the river. The two began drinking heavily and smoking marijuana. They started committing petty theft and arson. They burned down a tractor store in October of 1981, causing around $200,000 worth of damage and injuring a fireman. They were eventually brought to court for arson and vandalism that they did at a technical college near their home. They pled guilty at Swansea Crown Court. The judge then sent them to Broadmoor Hospital. It's a high-security mental hospital where they were to be detained indefinitely. There they became the youngest patients ever, and they would spend almost 14 years there. So inside, their strange behavior continued. They took turns eating. One day, one would gorge and the other starved. The next day, they'd switch. And even though they were housed at opposite ends of the hospital, nurses would find them each frozen in the same pose. June felt the harsh sentence was due to their muteness. She said, juvenile delinquents get two years in prison. We got 12 years of hell because we didn't speak. We lost hope, really. They were given very high doses of an antipsychotic medication. Jennifer developed tardive dyskinesia from using the long-term use of the medicine. And that's a neurological disorder resulting in involuntary and repetitive movements, like grimacing, sticking out the tongue, and smacking the lips. Their medicine was adjusted then. The twins continued to write in their diaries, but ceased their creative writing. Their case gained some media attention. A journalist for the Sunday Times, Marjorie Wallace, heard about their sentence. She said it was like condemning young children to live with rapists and murderers. When Marjorie Wallace first went to see the twins at Broadmoor, the reception was very icy. They were brought in by attendants. Their bodies were very stiff like boards. They didn't move and they refused to speak to her. That was until she talked about their writing and then they opened up. They responded to her with rapid fire questions about what she thought about their stories. They even allowed her to read their diaries written in very tiny script. It was a daunting task. Wallace eventually won over the twins. She did something years of therapy never could. The twins spoke to her and trusted her. Over tea at one visit, Jennifer looked at her and said, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. When Marjorie asked why, Jennifer said, because we decided. Marjorie said, I sort of laughed. I sort of said, what? Don't be silly. You're 31 years old. You know you're about to be freed from Broadmoor. Why are you going to have to die? You're not ill. She was referring to their upcoming transfer to Caswell Clinic in Bridgen, Wales. It was a low-risk facility and much less severe than Broadmoor. What she didn't realize is the sisters had a long-standing agreement. If one died, then the other would begin speaking and live a normal life. Together, they just couldn't do that. One had to die. Jennifer agreed to be the one. They said they felt war-weary. June said, 
it had been a long battle, someone had to break the vicious circle. So in a sense, they created this odd world where they lived in the not speaking, mirrored movements. And then the odd, almost superstitious belief that to be normal, one had to die. In March of 1993, the twins began the transfer to Caswell Clinic. When they arrived at the facility, Jennifer could not be roused. She was rushed to a hospital where she was declared dead. She died of acute myocardia. It's a sudden inflammation of the heart. No drugs or poison were found in her system. June said the day before Jennifer had been slurring her words and acting strange. She kept saying she was dying. On the trip to Caswell, she slept in June's lap with her eyes open. At first, June was deeply depressed. Five days later, Marjorie visited her. She said June seemed happy. She said to her, I'm free at last, liberated, and at last Jennifer has given up her life for me. Finally, both twins were at peace. Jennifer's headstone is engraved with a poem written by June. We once were two. We two made one. We no more two. Through life be one. Rest in peace. June lives in West Wales near her parents' home. She rarely goes out apart from visiting family, but they say she's happy. She's no longer monitored by any psychiatric services, and she's been accepted by her community. In 2016, her sister Greta spoke to a reporter. She talked of how the family had been deeply troubled by the twins' incarceration. She blames Broadmoor for what happened to them. She wanted to file a lawsuit against them, but her parents refused, saying it wouldn't bring Jennifer back. I do think Broadmoor was a bit of an austere and very serious place for two young girls, no matter what their issue. I think the system didn't know what to do with them, since therapy didn't seem to do anything. Obviously, the bond between twins goes deeper than anyone ever realized. I never thought about how detrimental the close bond could be. I think when most people think of identical twins, they think of two people who share everything. They don't think of the personal identity that seems to be lost when someone is that close. Ursula and Sabina seem to be driven to some kind of mania in each other's presence. If they hadn't reunited, would these events ever have happened? Would they have lived just normal, separate lives? Would June and Jennifer have fared better if they had had an upbringing where they didn't move around so much? Their relationship seems a lot more complicated. I don't know if they could ever have lived a normal life. To learn more about these cases, check out YouTube for the documentary that I spoke of. There's also a play and a couple of documentaries about the Gibbon sisters. They were always referred to as the Silent Twins. I think it would be really interesting to get a hold of one of their books. So maybe in the end, I'm glad I'm an only child. Having to deal with another version of myself sounds like its own special hell. So that was this week's episode about deadly twins. Let me know what you think. 
I really enjoyed doing last week's In the News episode, and I'm really anxious to do another one. Especially with the revelations about this submarine murder, it gets crazier day by day. So thanks a lot for the feedback on social media. I really liked Mikey Williams' suggestion a couple weeks ago. It was really good, and I might incorporate it into an episode when I'm up to it, because it's a very sad story. And there's lots of stories in the Pittsburgh area, too. So, Yenzers, let me know if you'd like to hear any. Check out the Red Rum Blonde Facebook page. And I'm also on Twitter, at Blonde Red Rum. If you're boycotting Twitter due to Rose McGowan, I really understand. I finally got an Instagram page this week, so go check that one out. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.